The best business development that any headhunter could ever do is to make really awesome placements. If I place Mark with an organization and he gets promoted three times, he's doing good work, and he's kind to the people around him, he's my walking, talking advertisement. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and my guest today is Cameron Boyd. Cameron is a partner at Smith & Wilkinson, and he's a 15-year veteran of the executive search industry. Cameron serves financial services companies in Eastern United States, and he's completed over 250 key leadership searches, including 17 president and CEO searches. As the firm's second largest shareholder, Cameron's been instrumental in growing the revenue by 600% over the last 10 years. Back when the firm was affiliated with MRI, Cameron was the International Rookie uh, Account Exec of the Year, and then regularly towards the top of the leaderboard nation, uh, nationwide, multiple years in a row. Recently, during COVID-19, he's been volunteering as a driver for Meals on Wheels. Cameron, it's great to meet you. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Flattered. Awesome. So you're based in Portland, Maine. Is that correct? Yeah, I am. I, I'm i from Halifax, Nova Scotia, which is just a ferry ride away from, from you guys. Uh, and I've been on family trips to, to Maine and and so on. So uh, oh, I know it well, and we'll have this conversation offline. I actually started my college days at Acadia University in, oh, in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. I had applied to Dalhousie in uh, in Halifax and spent some time there. So beautiful part of the world. Oh wow, cool. Well, it seemed to me when I was driving, when I've you know driven through Maine, that I mean, it's it is the same scenery, it's the same style houses, it's the same folks, pretty much just on the other side of the border. So, uh, so that's cool. Uh, interesting that you went to Acadia. Um, now you introduced me by Rich Rosen. How do you know Rich? So Rich and I are both members of the Pinnacle Society, yeah. uh, which as you know, is self-styled as a premier consortium of recruiters. recruiters. Really what it is, it's a, you know, it's a wonderful social avenue for people who are heads down, working their desks day in and day out to share ideas. Uh, for me, more than anything, it's camaraderie. And Rich also lives here in New England. He lives in Massachusetts. So we've got yes. that connection as well. Yes. All right. Fantastic. Well, Rich's interview that I did, I don't know if it was about six months ago, is the most popular episode I've ever done. I've, okay. This is now, uh, when, when your interview comes out, Cameron, it's going to be something like, number 50, 45 to 50. And um, I've been doing this for about a year and Rich's is number one. He's had well over a thousand downloads of that uh, episode. People, it's something about the way he comes across really resonated for people. Those are big, um, those are big shoes to fill. <laughs> well, no, I, I didn't mean to uh, set this up as a competition, um, but uh, no, it's just, it's, uh, it's interesting. Um, so Cameron, you and I were talking about the client experience, wanting to be a trusted advisor and to, um, shift from a contingency transactional model to a a real partnership with clients on a retained basis. Um, could you kind of walk through that evolution for, for you and how, how you've achieved that? Sure. I, I've had a bias towards 
retain search since the very, very beginning. So when I was thinking about getting into the, into the industry in 2004, 2005, my, my parents knew a guy who was later in his career as a, as a solo headhunter, a guy by the name of Tom Patrick. He's long since retired. And he had a niche in sort of chain restaurant operators. So big customers of, of his were companies like Darden, which runs Red Lobster and other sort of franchise restaurants. And he would do vice president and director level search for them, uh, but only on a retained basis. And this is a guy who worked from his home in, in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine, and would solo bill three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year, which, you know, when you talk about million dollar billers, doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're doing it from your home office, it, you know, it certainly adds up. And in, you know, early meetings with him, the way he worked with his customers, the way he was a trusted advisor, a consultant, just really stuck with me early on. And I thought that's, you know, that's a way I'd like to make a living. And then like anybody, I started in the business and you start at the bottom and what do you win at the bottom? You win contingency. And very early on, just started thinking that this is a model that, again, it works for a lot of people. Uh, and there are a lot of contingency recruiters who make a lot of money, who bring value to their clients, who bring value to candidates, but it's not for everybody. And as I sort of went through my career, I just always felt dirty after a contingency search. And again, a lot of my friends work that way, but I always felt that uh, in trying to push my candidate forward for me to get a fee, it just felt like I wasn't aligned with the interests of everybody else. And, you know, it, uh, it certainly was not an overnight transition. I remember back in the age of CDs, I had a, a Danny Cahill uh, two disc set that I used to listen to in my pickup truck when I was um, driving to visit my, you know, uh, what at the time was my distant girlfriend, who is now my wife. And, you know, I remember, so this was probably 12 years ago, thinking he makes it sound so easy, makes it sound so easy to go out and sell, retain search, to sell objectivity, to sell these things where, you know, what I'm getting is 20% multiple firm contingency. So again, it it was not overnight. It's been an evolution, uh, but I think it's been an important one. It's interesting. Uh, there's a few things I'd like to pick up on there, but you mentioned this guy who is it, was he a family friend, this retained search consultant? Uh, yeah. I, yes. So I grew up in a very, very small town, uh, one stoplight uh, town on the coast of Maine with 2,500 or 3,000 year round residents. And uh, in a small community, it's a lot of people know a lot of people. So this is somebody who he had a national book of business and you know, I look back on the way he conducted business, and I think a lot of it was overkill. So, for example, he would, uh, you know, start every search from scratch and handwrite in a notebook, here are the 50 people I'm going to start by calling, and that's going to grow to 100 or whatever the case may be. Build his candidate pool. He didn't, didn't have a database. He used a fax machine. And then he would get on an airplane, and he would fly from, you know, pick a city uh, Atlanta to Tulsa to Portland, Oregon, interviewing all of the candidates in person on a wow. multi-day, sometimes multi-week interviewing barrage where he'd meet them at the airport and spend many, many hours with them and, you know, do in-depth interviews about, you know, what did your dad do for a living? What time did your mom have dinner on the table every night? Uh, you know, prior to putting forward a candidate pool and then be there in person with the customer to facilitate every, uh, 
every inch of it. And later on, I actually contemplated buying out his book of business and had some conversations with some of his customers who are executives at places like Duncan Brands. Uh, and they would say, hey, look, you know, Tom dives a little deeper than maybe necessary, but he gets the job done every, you know, every time. So I've always kind of looked back on him as the Yoda of my headhunting <laughs> career. Uh, that early on, here was a guy that was, you know, carving out a niche more as a consultant than a, a resume jockey. Wow. So, because when I was, I really had no awareness of the recruiting business growing up. And it sounds like you had this positive exposure to it pretty early on. Like what age were you when you sort of understood what he did? No, this was, this was post-college. So this oh, okay. was, uh, I was already uh, talking about joining the first firm I was with or had already joined. I can't recall exactly. So mm -hmm. I spent five years with a franchise of Sanford Rose Associates. Oh, yes. Uh -huh. Which is a different SRA today than it was then. So okay. today, as you know, they're owned by Kay Bassman and I think yes. the world of the folks down there. Uh, so at the time, I think there were 60 offices and there's however many hundreds now. Uh, yeah. But so I spent five years with a franchise of SRA before joining this firm, which again was at the time a, a franchise of MRI. Okay. All right. No, that, that makes more sense. Um, I wanted to speak to something that you mentioned, which is the idea of in contingency, you have to push... Like if you're going to get the fee, you have to sell your candidate um, and persuade the client that your guy is the best. And this theme of objectivity, I think, is one that's important to you. Could could you speak on that a little bit? Like how you've introduced objectivity into your practice in a way that's beneficial for the client? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I'll I'll get to talking about fee structure in a second, mm -hmm. but I think by nature when one candidate has a fee or a different fee or no fee attached to his or her head than this candidate, then all objectivity goes out the window, regardless of how hard we all try, regardless of how hard headhunter or client tries to keep in mind who is the best candidate. If one's gonna cost you 50 grand to hire and one's gonna cost you 25 or zero to hire, you're going to take that into your calculation. So out the window goes the idea that we're all on the same team trying to figure out who is the best fit for this role, who is best suited to solve this problem that this organization has. So I think by its nature, a fee structure that allows for the headhunter to be paid regardless of who is hired pits his or her interests on the same side as the client. When it's yes. contingency... And again, I have a lot of good friends who work contingency. Uh, but what you have is you have a competition with the best interests of your clients. Mm -hmm. You are in competition with internal recruiters. You are in competition yeah. with your client's budget. Uh, and it doesn't really strike me as a team effort. That no. And in fact, you're in competition with your client because you have to, um, in order to ensure that you get paid, you have to, uh, I mean, it would be commercially prudent to show that same candidate to multiple clients, yeah, right, uh, to hedge your bets. And how many times have we all been interviewing a candidate where the candidate says something that gives you some pause, it mm -hmm. raises some red flags, and you're like, I don't know about this guy. Or you're checking a reference on the candidate, and the reference is anything other than stellar. It's anything other than glowing. It gives you some pause. 
where mm -hmm. if you didn't have a vested financial interest, you might bring that to the attention of your client. I think it's a very admirable contingency recruiter who then you're at the final stages of a search and let's say it's a big number, it's a 50, 60, $100,000 fee. If you place this guy or gal, very admirable for the recruiter to say, I'm gonna, sh I'm gonna blow up this deal right now because one of the references said something that really concerned me. How, how often yeah. does that happen on a contingency deal? What I found, and again, this might be me, is in contingency, you kind of put your blinders on. That oh, I didn't hear that, I didn't hear that, they really like this guy. And, uh, you know, again, we just feel that that is a model that is guaranteed to come back and bite you. Uh, right, I feel right. very, very strongly that the best marketing, the best uh, business development that any headhunter could ever do is to make really awesome placements. So if I place Mark with an organization and he gets promoted three times and is a stellar coworker and is doing good work and he's kind to the people around him, he's my walking, talking advertisement all yep. day, right? So I have a long-term motivation to place really good people. And again, I just think it, you know, it runs a little in conflict there. But I, I mentioned wanting to get back to fees. So we started moving towards flat fees a number of years ago for certain level positions. And then in the past three years, 100% of my fees have been flat fees. Mm -hmm. So client and I agree on a number. Typically, what I try to get to is 30% of a salary midpoint. Mm -hmm. Your range is 100 to 200 or whatever the numbers are. So we do 30% of 150. Yep. The fee is the fee. So if you end up having to go way over budget to hire Mark, you have to pay this person 250 instead of 200. You know that when we're having this conversation, I don't have a vested interest in that. It's not going to pad my fee by a couple thousand bucks. My fee is my fee. And I think that that's an important part of, of the objectivity discussion, which then flips over. And how many times have we been on the receiving end of the discussion of, well, what if a candidate comes to us directly? What if somebody falls out of the sky? We've got this internal candidate. I mean, it happens every search, right? So then you can, you can balance that by saying, once you engage with us, we're going to be your partner. We're going to be an extension of your organization. We're going to get paid the exact same fee, regardless of who you hire. And we're going to get paid the exact same fee, regardless of what you pay that person. Now, the flip side to that and the downside to retained here is what I will also say is, you owe me a fee for this one project. That's it. You're retaining us on this one search to get this job done. What happens if we hire two people? You introduce us to somebody during the course of this search that we hire for a different role. Contractually, I don't... We've agreed on one objective search. You don't owe me anything there. In practice, what usually ends up happening is, you know, can we pay you a half fee for Mark? We weren't hiring, we weren't planning on hiring a chief risk officer, but Mark fits the bill. Yes, of course. Uh, right. But so the flip side in pitching objectivity and pitching objectivity on this one specific important role is where contingency recruiters can bill more is, well, you had one role, but you hired three of my people. So you owe me three fees. I feel there's a middle ground there, which uh, which serves you know everyone's interest. This it's funny. This issue came up uh, in my inner circle coaching group recently. Uh, one of the ladies in the group had this exact scenario where uh, 
she was expecting to make one placement, end up making two on this retained search. And the client was now in her terms, that is a separate fee in her terms of business, but the client is always going to want to test that and sort of see, well, you know, um, it was, you did the same amount of work. You didn't do twice as much work. So surely you can give us a, uh, you know, a discount on the second fee. And, and, and that's, pretty much what ended up happening is it was, you know, they, they did a negotiation, but she still got something, uh, something for it. And and that's how it usually ends up working out. It, that scenario is more common with, for example, what Rich does with salespeople. Yeah. Uh, You might engage Rich to find a salesperson and hire three in our world. You know, the parallel there would be commercial banking officers. They're the kind of salespeople for our clients that might happen there. But if you've retained us to find your next CFO, Odds are you're not going to hire two CFOs. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. So Cameron, I wonder if we can just retrace our steps here. So we're talking about transitioning from a contingency to a retained model and what that evolution was like. So what time frame are we talking here for, for you? Like going from, like for this really developing and you embodying the, the retained um, model? Yeah, I mean, so... Early in my career, when I was with the, the franchise of Sanford Rose Associates, I worked a few, uh, there's different names for them. We happen to call them dedicated searches, money down, financially committed. Some people yeah. call them container searches. Right. Uh, so I had worked, yeah, I had worked a handful of those. Uh, what we here at Smith and Wilkinson, and I'm forgetting the time frame. I've been here going on 11 years. Mm-hmm. But pretty early on in my tenure, we started to push for what we were calling dedicated searches, mm-hmm. which is, can you put $5,000 down on the search? The yeah. balance of this is, is going to be a true up at the end. It's still going to incent us to really hustle. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I kind of hate the phrase, but we've all learned that if a client has some skin in the game, we are yeah. much more likely, excuse me, yeah. my running watch says it's time for a run. Um <laughs> we're more likely to make the placement if they've got some skin in the game. Yeah. So we've tracked over the years, the metrics and we have a, you know, an under 50% chance of filling a contingency role, which is mm-hmm. why we encourage our recruiters not to take those searches. We've got something like a 17% success rate on multiple firm contingency. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. We've got an 80% success rate if there's money down and we're in the yeah. 90 to 97% range on retained search. And yes. that's something that benefits us, but it also benefits the client and to say, commit to us and we're going to get this done. We have a track record, but you also have to be willing and able to say, or your money back. Uh, ah, can you say more a, on that? There's, yeah, there, I mean, there's a long time sort of MRI recruiter by the name of Richie Harris, okay. who's an emeritus uh, member of Pinnacle Society. Mm-hmm. And I won't use some of his colorful language because we're recording here, but a couple of years ago at a pinnacle meeting, uh, Richie, I'll paraphrase, said to me, if you're going to make demands, you better produce. So if you're going to say you work with me exclusively and we're going to work on a, be it a dedicated or a retainer model, uh, here, here are my expectations if we're going to work on this search, pony up and do whatever it takes to get that job done. Um, you also need to be willing and able to, you know, give the money back if you're not the right firm for them. We've had to do that. I don't know. I could probably count on one hand 
the number of times where we've sent back the engagement fee, where we've said to a client, you know, we'll guarantee you five candidates in 30 days or whatever the number is that we agreed on. And we just couldn't do it. Uh, maybe that search shouldn't have been taking money down anyway. Maybe the market was way too narrow, way too niche, but we took it. And we weren't able, uh, more often than not, they're flabbergasted that you've sent the money back and you know, you've, you've been true to your word. They're, they can't believe it. Again, it's happened five times in 11 years and we've done over a thousand searches in our banking practice. Wow. Uh, but you need to be willing and able to do it. And I think it protects the brand. Uh, you need to build a brand that you are, one, going to get the job done, but two, if you don't, you're going to honor the agreement that you made with that organization. There's, you know, we've all heard the saying, do you want to win the battle or win the war? And I think too many recruiters are focused on winning the battle because yes. they're focused on that next commission check. I need to cash this in next month or I'm not going to get paid. Yes. I mean, if oh, okay. you're hyper-focused on winning every battle, you will lose the war. Is yes. what I meant. Long, long game, long game. For sure. I think people do not appreciate the lifetime value of a customer, you know, and, and imagine how much a relationship could be worth to you over 10 years or even five years compared to the value of a single placement. Yeah. I have a competitor in our space. Who's a, he's a nice guy. I've met him a couple of times who uh, has, there are a lot of organizations in our sort of shared space who aren't going to work with him again. Uh, one instance was he placed a, a senior level uh, executive with an organization and had a 90 day guarantee on that role. And that executive left on day 92. And by contract, he didn't have to replace him and he didn't. And uh, that organization's not going to work with him again. Uh, yeah. You have to look and say, let's be reasonable. You just paid me a fifty or $60,000 fee for this key role. The guy left after 92 days. I'm going to get this right. And it's a judgment call and it's always a case by case. I'll do, mm -hmm. I do a one year minimum guarantee on every retained search. Mm -hmm. I do a two year minimum guarantee on a CEO search. Knock on wood, we've never had to do a replacement, but think, wow. about, how think about how damaging, uh, a never a replacement for a CEO. Yes. Um, but think about how damaging it would be if you placed a CEO somewhere most critical role in an organization and they left. You're going to do the replacement search if you care about the customer. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Plus you don't want, well, you don't want your competitor to get in there and, and replace them because then you you've lost, you know, all that future business. Now let's, let's be reasonable though. So if I placed a CFO and I had a one year guarantee and that person left one year and one day later, should I do a replacement outside of the contract? Yeah, of course. If it's 18 sure. months on a one-year guarantee, if it's two years on a one-year guarantee, you know, at some point you have to ask your customers to be reasonable as well. Yes. No, absolutely. And um, it's I like this idea of being reasonable and your flat fee idea is logical and it just seems very reasonable um, as, a way of, uh, as a way of operating. Since you're listening to this podcast, it tells me that you're someone who's interested in personal growth and business improvement. That's something we have in common. I really enjoy listening to podcasts, reading, and listening to business books, watching TED Talks. But by far the most important investment I've made in my own development has been working with a coach. It started back in 1999, 2000, 
when I was working as a recruiter. I hired a coach and he helped me to double my billings in 90 days. It was, it sounds corny, but it was really a life-changing experience. Since then, I've worked with various coaches almost continuously over the years, and it's made a massive difference to my own personal and business success. In fact, that first experience of working with a coach was the catalyst for me ultimately deciding that much as I loved recruitment, my true purpose was to become a coach and enable others to achieve their full potential. Fast forward to today, and I work with recruitment business owners to help them escape the feast and famine roller coaster and create consistent, predictable billings. If you'd like to know more, you can apply for a free strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. Let's switch gears here for a minute, Cameron. What would you say has been the biggest challenge in your recruiting career or roadblock or you know difficult time that you had to work through? Well, I'm in my second recession. <laughs> so you know, that's always challenging. Uh, yeah. What I'm starting to learn as I get older is recessions create real opportunity. And I'm not talking about, you know, we've all heard the statistics of X number of recruiters leave the industry and it, it calls the herd. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you're not uh, 100% full speed on your desk all time, it, it gives you an opportunity to think and to think mm-hmm. a little bit more strategically. So in 2018, I had a million plus dollar year. In 2019, I had a million plus dollar year. This year, I'm going to do six and change, right? So that's mm-hmm. not quite a 50% hit, but almost. Yes. Uh, but it's given me opportunity to think a little bit more strategically mm-hmm. and to say, with this little bit more time that I have in this recession, and there's going to be another upswing and then there'll be another downswing. Where do I want to grow our practice? What are organizations? What sorts of talent should I be using time to to cultivate in this downswing? Because when you're just running on your desk 100 miles an hour, that's all we're thinking about from the moment we wake up to the moment we go go to bed. So, you know, I think recessions should really be looked at as an opportunity, mm-hmm. uh, which is my next piece of advice. If I had to give a young recruiter any piece of advice, it would be save your money. Save right. your money. Uh, I think it allows you to take a more objective view of search. Mm -hmm. If you're not living and dying by the next commission check, you're going to be more objective with your clients. You might walk away from a search because you can say to a prospect, we're not the right partner for you for this one, but let's please stay in touch. Or you might walk away from a candidate who's bad news, who's dishonest, and there's red flags everywhere. And if you can look past the next commission check, it's going to build your brand over time. And then the other logical reason is you can better weather the next recession. Yes, absolutely. That's easy to say, though, and hard to do for many of us. Um, Cameron, can I push you a little bit on this topic of challenge? Because the theme of my show is a resilient recruiter. Sure. And uh, I feel like, and I'm sure you would not be doing it this long if you didn't have that resilience. So your words of wisdom on the current situation absolutely on point. And I take everything, I agree with everything you said, but is there been a time where you felt, whether professionally or personally, really uh, facing adversity that you had to, you know, work work through? 
adversity is a real strong word in my mind, right? Okay. Adversity is, you know, a, a huge personal loss or running a desk while battling cancer. Um, I know recruiters who have done that and my heart goes out to them. So in my mind, adversity is a real strong word. And, and honestly, no, I haven't okay. faced like life altering adversity, but in terms of challenge, I think I'm going through it right now. Right. Uh, this is an industry that rewards people who come in with something to prove. They come in with a chip on their shoulder. Yeah. Uh, this is this is not a profession, barring a few exceptions. You didn't choose between being a brain surgeon and being a headhunter. <laughs> right, and right. You fell into this, and you're going to make the most of this situation. And yeah. you know, I've benefited from you know having a chip on my shoulder and feeling like I had something to prove. And you know that that worked. And then I think you reach a point of success where the challenge becomes not being complacent. Where, mm. you know, I spent 10 years trying to eat my competitor's lunch and now not losing sight on, there's a line of people who would like to eat the lunch of me and other successful recruiters. So I think, yes. you know, is complacency adversity? No, but I, I do think it can be challenging to find ways to continue to, uh, to push and to motivate yourself. Mm. And what ways have you found then to stay sharp and not become complacent? I mean, so a couple of areas. I mean, one is it's always been important to me to, to focus on the why, uh, mm. as, as corny as that seems. I mean, keeping family pictures of my wife and my boys uh, who are staring at me all day if I'm not on the phone. That's, pretty, <laughs> that's a pretty well-trodden trodden reason. But I think also pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone with new clients, new types of candidates where you do have to prove yourself again. So my desk is pretty heavily concentrated in a very mature, rapidly consolidating industry. So yes. when I joined this firm 11 years ago, there were 15,000 banks in the US. Wow. There's 5,000 now, 15 to five in 11 years. And we could be at 2,000 in five years, fewer mm -hmm. prospects, fewer clients. Uh, and so if I were to put my head in the sand, Mm -hmm. could very quickly look up and say, my, my dig disappeared, my niche disappeared. So I think a challenge is to push yourself to make those business development calls, make those marketing calls to organizations who don't know you, right? Mm. They're not taking your call because you've made 17 placements there. Um, you got you to gotta work for it again. And that's been invigorating this year. Great. Let's talk about that. Uh, I'm glad you found it invigorating. Uh, that's not the word some people would use. Uh, terrifying is maybe, um, but there's a good, it's a, it, it, I think it's much better to think of it as it being invigorating than terrifying. What um, have you done differently in the current environment in order to, you know, make sure that you're going after new business and, and um, you know, what, what, what kinds of things are you personally or are you doing in your firm? So net new business has been challenging during the pandemic. So yes. in the typical life cycle of trying to win or retain search, whether it starts with an email or a phone call, uh, what we're pushing towards, unless it's just geographically and logistically impossible, is to get in front of that person in person. If yeah. it's within a four or five hour drive, I'm in the car. If it's you know somewhere else, I'm on a plane. And we're trying to get in front of people in person because you want to do business with people you know and people you yeah. trust. And yes. you can it's better to earn that trust if you can get in front of people in person. 
that's that's been hard in this pandemic. So I focused a lot this year on taking care of existing customers. So yes. I don't know if you know much about this, but in the U.S. this year, we had something called PPP, uh, yes. which is the Paycheck Protection Program. And our clients, the community banks, were on the front lines of that, working incredibly long days, seven days a week. Are they going to retain us on a CFO search in the midst of this? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but I want to know that I want you to know that we're thinking of you. So uh, early in the pandemic, I took the time to write handwritten thank you notes to every banking executive I could think of, to every state banking exec I could think of, hundreds of thank you notes. My wrist hurt from doing it. Uh, we offered pro bono executive coaching to our customers. Brilliant. So we have a, and we also have an executive coaching arm and a succession planning arm. So we offered that pro bono just to say we're thinking of you, again, playing this Great. long game. Yeah. Uh, more recently, what I've done is try to organize Zoom meetings, sometimes mm -hmm. over a cocktail. Hey, do you want to meet me at five o'clock via Zoom and have a cocktail or just say hi? Uh, because what we're not doing is getting in the car and driving around and visiting, visiting our customers. So that's been a big focus. But, but net new business is challenging in this environment. Mm. Uh, and you need to lean on the technology that's available, which is exactly what we're doing now is a Zoom meeting. Uh, I have yeah. two meetings next week for potential CEO engagements, where right. uh, one is down in the mid-Atlantic, one's in greater Boston, and we're not going to travel. It's not safe to travel right now. So we're going to do Zoom meetings. And uh, is it the same? No, but it's what we have. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Um, something I wanted to ask you about, Cameron, which is, you mentioned that your market, there's a lot of consolidation. The, the the clients are getting bigger and bigger, but there's fewer of them. And this is a trend in a lot of industries. And what, what ends up happening is that um, you've got these massive client organizations, but then they also have more layers of bureaucracy. They have bigger internal talent teams. They have, they then bring purchasing or, you know, into the conversation about fees and it can become much more difficult to do business with larger companies like that. How have you guys, you know, navigated that? Well, and not to mention as organizations get larger, the big boys start paying more attention to them too. So sure. with our customers that are in the lower middle market in the middle market, Cord Ferry is not paying a lot of attention to them. Right. And so the game that we're trying to win is being the best boutique option for this customer. All of a sudden, our prospects and our clients are a lot bigger and Corn Ferry is paying attention. Yes. And so that's a challenge too. Uh, mm. Most of the roles that we're recruiting on are not those where, you know, we would be in competition with internal recruiters so much. But what we are trying to focus on is to scale our company to be able to offer more bells and whistles and more research because we're running up against Corn Ferry and Hydro Can Struggle more and more and more. So a couple of things that we're going to roll out next year, uh, and one of the reasons you and I had to delay this conversation is we're rolling out a new compensation plan. Uh, we're going to pay people, me included, less money. Because for a long time, as a, as a legacy MRI office, uh, the model was pay your producers as much as humanly possible, pay your support staff less, and, uh, you know, just run hard. And when everyone in our office is focused on my billings, 
my commission, my next deal. We've lost that objectivity that I was talking about earlier, mm-hmm. or we're, we're now playing inside baseball to figure out who's going to work this search and who gets paid on this instead of saying what's best for this organization. And so, you know, mess with a salesperson's commission and you know what happens, but we have very strategically built up a, you know, a balance sheet to be able to pay people base salaries and we'll do an end of year bonus, but we're moving away from commission uh, because commission is forcing people to think too short term. Should I work with this customer? Should I work on this search? Uh, is, you know, if that's what we're telling our clients. We're objective. We need to change how we pay ourselves too. That's really interesting, um, but it's quite unusual in our business. And um, now, is this a real significant change? Because I know one of my mentors, a guy called Romney Ross, and he detested the word commission. And he felt like if clients feel you're working on commission, then right away, they're skeptical of anything you have to say. And so- he just relabeled that as our employees are on a bonus or profit sharing um, plan, but he never used the word commission, but it more or less worked out to be the same thing. So how, it, it sounds like what you're saying is you've increased people's basic salary, but swapped out the the commission for something more. How does it actually Not going into too much detail, yeah. probably. Uh, mm-hmm. What, where I think the, the balance will be there when we roll this out on January one, mm-hmm. we'll be finding the right balance between enough stability to take yeah. the long view mm-hmm. and then enough motivation to still hustle. Because right. again, the day we stop hustling, we're done. Yes. Uh, so finding enough individual motive within there. And, yes. and then just to finish that thought and competing with the large firms, I think another area that is going to be very important to us is what we were called uh, center of excellence recruiting. Mm. So for me, being a generalist has always been very fun. Being able to work on a a CFO search, a chief lending officer search, a head of technology search, a CEO search, learning new areas of the business has kept this job intellectually stimulating for me. Mm -hmm. But what it means is that I'm kind of reinventing the wheel a little each time. Mm. So moving, and if you look at what the big firms do, they've got practice areas, but they also have subject matter expertise. So that if you get an RFP for technology search, you can say, Mark's our guy. He's Mm -hmm. been having conversations for the last year with the best technologists in this space. He knows what companies are about to be acquired. He knows who might be on the market. Here's five or six people we think you should very seriously consider. So you're going into the pitch meeting saying, we've already got a candidate pool. Now, are you going to hire one of these people? Maybe not. We still have some recruiting to do. Uh, But in competition with the big boys, you're never going to out-resource Corn Ferry, but you can outspeed them. So how do we offer yeah. you know, a more boutique experience at a lesser price and faster? Yes, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Fantastic. Um, speaking of your organization, like how, how many um, fee earners have you got in the business? So we have 15... Okay. Soon to be 16 full-time Great. employees. Mm-hmm. We have two full-time operations people. So one is our chief operating officer. He's a partner in the firm. Uh, he runs all things non-recruiting and sales. So finance, technology. I mean, he is our he's our chief operating officer. We have a full-time marketing person. 
which has been a really important hire. So she manages um, social media feeds, things like that, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Although in our world, uh, I don't know if we've ever received a candidate or a client from Facebook or Twitter. Uh, But she also manages our library of marketing collateral. So uh, be it one pagers about the company or what we call a digital briefcase or a proposal or a position description, uh, you know, really helping to up our game in the collateral that we're putting forward. I've, you know, earlier on been on too many pitch meetings where you're sitting with the CEO or the board of directors or whoever it may be. And you look under the table and you see the marketing collateral of the firm that was there before you. And you think, (laughs) oh, (laughs) that's what a real company is putting forward. Right, um, right. So operations, marketing, and then we have um, a number of practice areas. So mm-hmm. I run our financial services practice, which includes banks, credit unions, related financial services company, wealth management, things like that. We have an insurance practice, which is three people, practice director and two recruiters, uh, which has been going gangbusters this year. They, they absolutely carried us through the early part of the recession. Uh, we have a new nonprofit practice and we have a new engineering practice. Cool. Yeah. Fantastic. So how many people have you got working directly in your in your practice area, Cameron? So this is this is changing effective January one. Okay. But it'll be myself, three other partners, and three associates. And okay. this, what we're moving towards is a model of leverage so that associates recruit. And they're paid a base salary and they're paid a bonus that is largely based on send outs. Mm -hmm. Don't just find resumes, find candidates that we can send on interviews, uh, which, you know, when we master that leverage model, we'll really put the goal on myself and the other partners in the practice to focus more on running deals, maintaining client relationships and doing new business development. Mm. Fantastic. That makes a lot of sense. And by the way, just to clarify terminology for everyone, when you say a send out, you mean you're sending a candidate for an interview with the client. That's right. So the, uh, a presentation would be you've just sent the resume. Yeah. A send out would be it is an interview, whether it's in person or it's Zoom or it's on the phone. Uh, client engages with candidate. We call that a send out. Yes. And that's, that's a legacy no MRI phrase. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's I found it's used in the United States, but not necessarily in other places. So I just want to make sure we've got an international audience. I just want to make sure everyone knows what we're talking about here. So, okay, fantastic. Um, so what does the future hold then? Um, and, you know, what, what do you, what are you expecting from 2021? Hopefully some stability. Uh, <laughs> right. I, I hope 2021 is the most boring year we could possibly <laughs> imagine. <laughs> Right, and that we all get vaccinated, and we can all start to visit customers again in person. Uh, candidly, I've been shocked how much business we've done this year, given the challenges. It's not going to be our best year ever. Last year was our best year ever, and the year before that had been the best year, and the year before that had been the best year. You can't do that every year. I think mm-hmm. top line revenue is going to be down. It's looking like ten to fifteen percent this year, which, wow, given everything that's... going on in the world. I'll take it. Absolutely. I I think that's a win, Cameron. Most people would uh, say that's that's an absolute win. Yeah, but the future is going to hold a more diverse product and service offering to customers. Mm -hmm. 
So if you think about what organizations spend on talent, even though the fees, like when you look at them solo, look like big fees, executive search is this tiny sliver of the pie of talent spend because they're spending it on executive coaching and succession planning and compensation consulting and diversity and inclusion initiatives. And search is like this tiny sliver. So the vision moving forward is more products and more services to our customers. Um, so that's going to include executive coaching. It's going to include formal succession planning. It's going to include compensation consulting so that we can come in and our kind of our tagline of our company is partners in talent, that we can be mm. a partner, partner in talent. I, I'm a huge, huge believer in that. Um, and I, maybe as you get older, you just have less patience for clients where you feel like it's an adversarial relationship. They don't really want to work with you. You're held at arm's length. There's no communication. I just think, you know, and I, I don't recruit anymore, but even, you know, when I did, I just could not be bothered with that. It, it's not fulfilling in, in any real way. And so the partnership with your client where you are collaborating, you're working together and uh, they were, they, you are the trusted advisor. They listen to your advice. Um, I think that has to be the the way forward for sure. Which speaking of which, then it, what advice would you have for someone? Like, let's say someone's joined your firm from a contingency firm. They were maybe they did well in that environment, but you're retraining them to work in your environment. What advice would you have for them in order to help them to make that make that shift? Yeah, again, my disclaimer being. I don't want to anger any of my contingency friends. Uh, move the needle realistically. So if you've only ever won contingency, try to win an exclusive contingency. Right. And, and learn how you're going to differentiate from being a multi-firm contingency recruiter to a one firm and find three or four key differentiations, right? And start winning yep. single exclusive contingency. From there, move the needle to money down. We call it financially committed. We call our model dedicated. Uh, start with trying to get $2,500 down and then 5,000 yeah. and then 7,500. We shoot for 10 now. Correct. So real, real quick aside. So we differentiate that roles over a base salary of $150,000 mm-hmm. should be retained and roles mm-hmm. under 150,000 should be dedicated. So under $150,000, okay. it's 10,000 down with two thirds of the fee or whatever the balance is as a true up. And then over that number is a third, a third, a third on a traditional retained schedule. Yes. But so as you've moved from contingency to exclusive contingency to dedicated, right? And you've moved the needle from five grand down to 10 grand down, then start to figure out the right language to differentiate. Again, we think it's objectivity mm-hmm. to start to win retain search. But to think yes. that you're going to go from, you know, one end of the spectrum to the other overnight. It's this process of baby steps. Uh, that makes a lot of sense now that you've analyzed it that way, because that's more or less exactly what I did. Because I, I was not successful at contingency recruiting because I'm quite slow and methodical in the way that I do things, and I was I was just missing out to competitors who they were cutting corners. They were like, you know cutting corners big time, but they would, they would show the resume or the CV to the client first and they would, they would win the fee. And I just thought this, this is not, 
this is not working. So I had an experience I, maybe eight years ago with a large yeah. regional bank that was like one of my last, I'm done with this, where yeah. th- they had implemented a vendor management software that previously hadn't been done. Uh and recruited a candidate for an individual contributor role, logged in and went through this whole rigmarole of uploading it to the portal. And some other recruiter had emptied his or her database into their their vendor software system. And then, you know, it kind of pops up, you're out of luck. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) how how is this good for anybody? It's, uh, I I have a whole, I won't, I won't go on my soapbox right now, but I have an article on my blog. If anyone wants to check it out, why I hate VMS systems, vendor management systems. But um, yeah, so my first focus was figuring out how to sell exclusive because I felt like if I could do that and that worked. And then once I got to that point, I realized the client can still say, oh, never mind, Mark, we actually decided to you know, have an internal reshuffle or we're not going to go, you know, you've done the work, but you don't get paid, even though- you did the, the the job, and then moved to getting the deposit, and then moved to getting, you know, uh, multiple stages. So I, that's a great way of breaking it down. I think. Yeah, and with larger clients, I mean, we've had this work a couple of times, mm-hmm. a couple of times in our banking practice, more often in our insurance practice, where I think the best model is to get on a monthly retainer with a client. Yes. Uh, yes. You know, we've seen that anywhere from five to ten to even twenty-five a month because they know they're going to be making a lot of hires and you've agreed on, you know, average fee is going to be called 25% or whatever a flat fee number equivalent would be. And then every month you're subtracting the difference. Those are awesome engagements. They tend to last, I think if you're lucky a year, maybe two. Uh, But then, you know, once the hiring initiative's done, they roll off, but those are, those are golden. Okay. I'm really glad you brought this up, Cameron. What do you, do you have a name for that service or that product, like talent pipelining or like, how do you, what do you call that? Yeah. I mean, so we've done, I think a half dozen of those. Okay. Uh, so, so they don't have a name yet. Okay. <laughs> I, I have a client who called it continuous retained search. I like that. Um, and uh, he was a smart guy based in London, Nathan Francis, um, shout out to Nathan. And um, yeah, he would he would do this with hedge funds uh, where he recruited technology people for hedge funds and they, where they were like in the heyday when they were really kind of this is pre last recession, right? Uh, when that industry was was blowing up, then he would have a few clients on this paying him a monthly retainer. Um, and uh, that was a good that was a good model. But one of the best models we have running now is a multi-year succession planning model where uh-huh. the organization has the foresight to look ahead sometimes two three years and say ceo will be retiring we have some internal people who have potential but nobody's the heir apparent and so we have a model now where we can utilize our executive coaches so we go through a visioning exercise with the board of directors to determine who they want to be, what they're looking for, interview those internal candidates, benchmark them against that, identify any potential gaps, be it from a leadership standpoint or a technical skill standpoint, mm-hmm. assign coaching, coach along the way, and then maybe one of them gets hired. Great. If not, we've also built in an option of, of then an external search. So obviously you're that deep into the relationship. It's going to be a bit of a discount on the executive search. 
But, you know, really a model for us is to get ahead of these retirements that leave our clients looking around and saying, everyone's retiring at the same time, we should just sell the place. Because if CEO is 64, and that number is true across the rest of the senior management team, often that that's leading to some of the consolidation in our industry, because they might look and say, we could do a CFO search or a CEO search, but we're not going to do six searches simultaneously. Mm. That's brilliant, because then the succession planning and executive coaching is sort of a Trojan horse for unpacking the rest of your because every, every executive coaching session that they have, which is bi-weekly with one of our coaches, all of the material is branded Smith & Wilkinson. It's on their binders. It's on right. the material. Beautiful. Hopefully we're, we're, hopefully, we're top of mind when there's a need. Yeah, no kidding. Have, is that something you've done much of or is this really a concept at this stage? So this is, this is new. Uh, so yeah. we acquired a two-person executive coaching firm okay. and their intellectual property. Uh, in 2018. And this is really an initiative that's been led by my business partner, Carl Wilkinson, who spent much of last year and this year hiring and training a team of coaches. Uh, so we've, we now have probably six or seven of these engagements going. Uh, but moving forward, it's going to be a big initiative to be that partner in talent and not just offer executive search, but offer solutions to, to talent. Because we're biased. If we get paid for you hiring from the outside. Yes. Um, I was just saying that uh, you mentioned that your watch beeped because it was time for you to go running. I'm sorry that you're late for your run, uh, but I appreciate you staying longer. Uh, I've taken up running recently, but I'm wondering what your experience here is, why you've started running. Uh, well, it's not a new thing. It's an old enough thing where my ankles and hips and, and knees are are feeling it. But uh, mental health in this business is, I mean, like any business, but really, really important. The highs and lows in this industry can be very, very extreme. And we all know headhunters who sometimes deal with that the wrong way. Uh, headhunters can sometimes be a thirsty group of people. And that's not always a good thing. Uh, big appetites for food and drink and, you know, sort of celebrating the successes. But I've known, you know, from the very, very beginning that, that managing mental health is is really a top, top, top priority. And I'd mentioned earlier, you know, what's the upside of being a little bit slower on your desk during a downturn? Exercise more. Um, mm. fuel, fuel up for that. So we're big uh, proponents of it in our company. We pay for gym memberships for everybody. Great. And pre-COVID, uh, there was a gym across the street from our office where we encourage people to go on their lunch break. Yeah. So uh, what I don't want you to do is come in a little late, go to the gym for a long workout, and then leave a little early. That's not going to work. But I want you to come in a little early, pound the phones, go get a great workout in, come back energized, and then you know have a great afternoon. And what it does to your afternoon calls is absolutely magical. You know, the alternative is your you know, staring at the screen, drinking too much coffee. So, you know, exercise, whatever your exercise might be, walking, running, going to the gym, going to a CrossFit style class. I think it's just absolutely critical. And, uh, you know, a lot of the best headhunters that I know are absolute fitness fanatics. Yes, definitely. So, well, that is really interesting because, um, I'm glad you brought this up, the subject of mental health. I think people are becoming more, and by people, I mean uh, search firms, recruiting firms, staffing firms are becoming more 
aware of it. And because um, this is a very high pressure, high stress. And as you said, the extreme highs and lows uh, is hard to take sometimes. Um, so apart from encouraging people to use the you know gym membership and that sort of thing, do you have any other policies to protect and, and promote people's mental health? Well, again, this year's been different. Uh, 75% of our staff is working remote. Yes. And staying on top of how people are doing is, is challenging. Yeah. Uh, but encouraging people to take a mental health day, to use their PTO. Uh, this all ties into why we're uh, rethinking compensation next year. Because I've been in this business for 15 years. I've never in my life taken a two-week vacation the idea of wow. being away from my desk for two weeks, like terrifying, <laughs> you know, and how many vacations have I been on where I'm on the beach and I'm like on my phone, honey, I'll be right there. This is important. Uh, we, we've all been there. Right. And yeah. so taking a more team approach to solving a problem for a client that's less based on my billing and my commission, I think will also help people's mental health. Use that yes. time off, go on a vacation, spend time with your family, come back energized and positive. Because when you're making a sales call, if you come in with force of personality and some positivity, you're going to engage with people. If you come in and it's like your 17th call of the morning, mm, you're not going to win that deal. It's int- I, I, I'm going to send you a link, Cameron, to an interview I did that I think you'll enjoy by a, an Australian entrepreneur called Paul Hallam. And they have really doubled down on this idea of promoting mental health um, in their recruiting firm, they've got some great ideas. One of them is they enforce the personal time off. You can't opt out of your holidays and, uh, in your vacation time. And they also have kind of anonymous, not anonymous, but they have a counseling paid for, you know, telephone counseling and that sort of thing, which is, um, confidential, I should say, not anonymous. So they don't, disclose that to their, to the employer, but if it's there, if the employee wants to just reach out and, and, and talk to someone. Yeah. I think for the, <clears throat> for a long time, we probably had the wrong culture around work. Mm-hmm. Uh, the heroes in the company work the longest hours right? and they right. put the most calls up on the board and they skip vacations and weekends. And I'm super guilty of that because yeah. I had to be at the top of the billing board. Uh, not being at the top of the billing board wasn't an option. And it's not a it's not a sustainable long term model, and you're right. not necessarily helping your clients out either. Yeah, awesome. Well, looks. Thank you for that little uh, extra bit. That was you know that's really important. I think, especially with the pandemic, people are under a lot more stress than you know. There's just like an uh, um, overall, everybody is under that extra bit of stress. So, I think it's definitely worth keeping in mind and staying physically healthy and active is definitely goes a long way to protecting your mental health as well. So, uh, all right. Awesome. Thanks again, Cameron. And, uh, I'll look forward to talking again sometime. Sounds great. All right. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to the resilient recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again. And I'll see you next time.